down a threat to decency and humanity. Last week, along with cocaine, what is it to the Alchemical Tech Revolution, and I am your host, Wayne McRoy. Good evening, everyone. Tonight, we're going to take a look back at what it is that the secret schools teach about the lost continent of Atlantis. We're going to take a look into the Atlantean Epoch, as taught by the Rosicrucians, and as laid out by one Mr. Max Heindel in his book, The Rosicrucian Cosmo Conception. So tonight we're going to explore that avenue of thought and take a look at what are they talking about when they're speaking about Atlantis? What do they believe about this myth of Atlantis? And we're going to see that it's just one of many in a lineage of cataclysm stories that they have had throughout the secret schools, teaching that all of these periodic cataclysms occur within the world and cause all of these different types of revolutionary change in the process of evolution of mankind and of all beings associated here with the Earth. Now, prior to the Atlantean epic was something they called the Lemurian epic. And Lemuria was, once again, a legendary island that existed that came to a cataclysmic conclusion at some point in our ancient past. This is according to all the secret schools. Who knows where they really got this information from? Now, I know we have some stuff talking about Atlantis from people like Plato. So we have many of these other texts that have cropped up that talk about things like Lemuria as well and various other aspects of the world before the Great Flood discussed in the Bible. So many people try to equate the flooding of Atlantis and the destruction of Atlantis with the Great Flood in the Bible. I don't know if that's necessarily the case here or if that's where the legend comes from, but we'll take a look and see what the Rosicrucians say. They have some good records going back a very long time, and it's interesting to hear their take on the whole thing. So understand, even if you think this stuff's total nonsense, the important thing to factor into consideration here is that there are people in positions of power in this world that very much believe in these things and the things they do to act upon them will affect all of us. So even if you think it's all nonsense on the face of it, consider there are people that act upon these belief systems that are put forward in the secret schools here and the various teachings that are associated with them. So let's get right into the reading here tonight. The Atlantean Epoch. Volcanic cataclysms destroyed the greater part of the Lemurian continent and in its stead rose 
the Atlantean continent, where the Atlantic Ocean now is. Material scientists, impelled by the story of Plato to undertake researches regarding Atlantis, have demonstrated that there is ample foundation for the story that such a continent did exist. And I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. Already they're making carte blanche statements that are not necessarily true. I don't think that's really the case. But uh, they're saying here, yeah, yeah, you know, scientists agree Atlantis existed. Uh, I don't think that's the consensus right now, but we'll give them the benefit of the doubt. Let's continue reading. Occult scientists know that it existed, and they also know that the conditions there were such as shall now be described. Ancient Atlantis differed from our present world in many ways, but the greatest difference was in the constitution of the atmosphere and the water of that epoch. From the southern part of the planet came the hot, fiery breath of the volcanoes, which were still abundantly active. From the north swept down the icy blasts of the polar region. The continent of Atlantis was the meeting place of these two currents. Consequently, its atmosphere was always filled with a thick and murky fog. The water was not so dense as now, but it, it contained a greater proportion of air. Much water was also held in suspension in the heavy, foggy Atlantean atmosphere. And I'm going to pause for a moment, folks. Mr. Heindahl gives no indication how he knows this information or how the occult scientists know this to be fact. But this is what they maintain within the secret society groups. And honestly, I mean, if you believe some of the things that have been told us about ancient history here in our world, things like the existence of dinosaurs and all of this, perhaps this would explain how those creatures could have existed when it's a scientific impossibility today that such a creature can exist. But if there were atmospheric differences, perhaps it was possible. So maybe, maybe they're laying the foundation of something here that may have an air of truth to it or not. <laughs> or maybe it's just, this is just more of the teachings that they came up with these other ideas later to try and reinforce. Who knows? It's hard to say, but let's continue reading. Through this atmosphere, the sun never clearly shone. It appeared to be surrounded by an aura of light mist, as do street lamps when seen through a dense fog. It was then possible to see only a few feet in any direction, and the outlines of all objects not close at hand appeared dim, hazy, and uncertain. Man was guided more by internal perception than by external vision. Not only the country, but also the man of that time was very different from anything existent on earth at the present time. He had a head, but scarcely any forehead. His brain had no frontal development. The head sloped almost abruptly back from a point just above the eyes. As compared with our present humanity, he was a giant. His arms and legs were much longer in proportion to his body than ours. Instead of walking, he progressed by a series of flying leaps, not unlike those of the kangaroo. I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. So, <laughs> excuse me here for laughing a little bit at this. And now we could see some of, uh, you know, the, the various things of various other agendas that have come about recently here. How you can see the, the, the study of giants. How does this relate 
giants, you know, the, the Tartarians and things like that. They have long limbs, but they, they don't walk. They jumped around like kangaroos. So now we know, right? So now you know the giants jumped around like kangaroos. So it, this is good to know. And they had small sloping heads <laughs> with no frontal lobes. Uh, so this give, this paints a, a pretty silly looking picture, but this is what they're claiming here. This is what they claim. This is the this is what they teach in the secret schools, folks, that humanity's ancestors were giants, lanky giants with no frontal lobe of their brain. Okay? So we see some of the ridiculousness already being presented in here, but this is what they teach and this is what they believe. And maybe there's an air of truth to it, and maybe there's not. I can't say for sure I was never there. I didn't exist back in ancient Atlantis to verify these things, whether it was a real place and these were real people or not, or this was a real event. But uh, whether you take it as fact or whether you take it as just a fanciful myth or allegory, either way, just remember there's some important things that are interwoven throughout this narrative that they give that we see reflected in some of the modern agendas out there that are being promoted at this time. Things talking about hidden history and, and such type things. And yes, we could all agree that our past, our history has been totally misdescribed to us, and we have no honest idea what the ancient world really looked like. So maybe this is true, or maybe it's not. But... Here's the case. You have people today trying to reinforce these ideas in subtle ways out there in the mainstream, pushing certain things, and also in the alternative community as well, pushing certain ideas. And maybe there's a core of truth or a foundation of truth to some of it, and maybe there's not. It's hard to say, but keep in mind, this is all promulgated through the teachings of the secret schools going back to the mystery schools of antiquity. So all of these things have some agenda attached to them whether it's revealing actual truth or not is irrelevant what is relevant is that this is being used to promote certain agendas and to affect the human mind in certain ways in regard to the image of man as i always speak about the image being of key importance here so the future image of man is dependent upon some of these past images of man that they present here and this may be total allegory or myth, or there may be something to it. It's hard to say for sure, because we don't really have any way of knowing or verifying these things. But the occultists within these secret schools will certainly claim that this is true. How they know this, I don't know. They claim through occult investigation, through clairvoyance, and things like that. They could verify some of this stuff, but uh, once again, you're taking their word for it, aren't you? Where did they get this information from? That's the other big question as well. But let's continue reading here. So remember now, they were lanky giants with no frontal lobes that hopped around like kangaroos. Gotcha. Now let's continue on. He had small blinking eyes and his hair was round in section. The latter peculiarity of no other distinguishes the descendants of the Atlantean races who remain with us at the present day. Their hair was straight, glossy, black, and round in section. 
That of the Aryan, though it may differ in color, is always oval in section. The ears of the Atlantean sat much farther back upon the head than do those of the Aryan. And I'm going to pause for a minute here, folks. Yes, he's talking about the same Aryan race that the Nazi party talked about. You see, they, they think they're the descendants of the Atlanteans. And once again, we see more of the same type of ideology promulgated through the secret schools, through the mystery teachings of these mystery schools of antiquity, the mystery religions, mystery Babylon, if you want to call it that. These same types of ideas that they're somehow special or different, they have a different lineage, a semi-divine heritage that makes them the rightful rulers of mankind, gives them the divine right to rule. This is what they teach. This is what they believe. This is what the Nazis were acting upon because they were heavily involved with the secret schools through societies like the Vril Society and some of the others. So they, they very much believed in this stuff and acted upon it. And that's a perfect example of how even if you don't believe in any of this, it's important that you understand people in positions of power, some of them do and act upon it. And what they do to act upon it will affect us. That's a perfect historical example that we could look back at and see this. So keep that in mind. Even if you think the whole notion of Atlantis is silly, or even if you think the whole notion of lanky giants that jump around like kangaroos is silly, which it does sound silly to me, but this is what they say. So uh, th these were the the ancestors of the Aryan race, according to this here. This is what they teach within the Rosicrucian teachings. So here it is. I'm, I'm giving it to you in their own words, okay? I don't, I'm not making this stuff up. You can't make this stuff up. This is absolutely the things that they push, and they believe, and they act on. So take it with a grain of salt, as I always caution you, but at the same token, understand there might be some important information in here as well and there may be some truths that could be found in here as well the higher vehicles of the early atlanteans were not drawn into a concentric position in relation to the dense body as are ours the spirit was not quite an indwelling spirit it was partially outside therefore could not control its vehicle with as great facility as though it dwelt entirely inside the head of the vital body was outside of and held a position far above the physical head. There is a point between the eyebrows and about half an inch below the surface of the skin, which has a corresponding point in the vital body. This point is not the pituitary body, which lies much deeper in the head of the dense body. It might be called the root of the nose. When these two points in the dense and the vital bodies come into correspondence, as they do in man today, the trained clairvoyant sees them as a black spot, or rather as a vacant space, like the invisible core of a gas flame. This is the seat of the indwelling spirit in the man, the holy of holies in the temple of the human body, barred to all but that indwelling human ego whose home it is. The trained clairvoyant can see with more or less distinctness, according to his capacity and training, all the different bodies which form the aura of man. This spot alone is hidden from him. This is the Isis, whose veil none may lift. 
not even the highest evolved being on earth is capable of unveiling the ego of the humblest and least developed creature. That, and that alone upon earth, is so sacred that it is absolutely safe from intrusion. And I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. This is the concept of the I am, the ontological self, the idea of the ontological self. This is something that's a hugely important idea, but this is also something that the transhumanist notion would seek to eradicate if it were possible. And they seem to think perhaps it is possible that they could take this indwelling place, this indwelling spirit, this animus from the person, and perhaps load it into a machine and duplicate it. I think they're mistaken. And I think those at the very top most levels of this transhumanist agenda realize that too. Now, it's been through a lot of years of study, and this is a little bit of a, a sidetrack here from where we're going, but uh, I've, I'm pretty confident that the bulk of the idea behind transhumanism is all about the culling of the masses. They want people to believe that they can go ahead and transfer their consciousness into a machine and their spirit into a machine and live forever in that way. But that is false. And I think there are those at the top of the power structure who are pushing this idea that know that. These dark occultists who run things. It's about clearing the way here in the physical world for the indwelling of something else. And this would be something referred to by Steiner, Rudolf Steiner, as the Aramonic influence, or the Aramonic forces. So with that being said, this is um, an idea that's hugely important, and I think there's a core of truth to it. The idea of the Holy of Holies, the I Am, that idea of ontological self. What makes you, you? What gives you this animus of consciousness, your spirit? And this is the idea that he says that this alone upon earth is so sacred that it's absolutely safe from intrusion. Although there's people in positions of power in this world, these dark occultists at the top of the power structure, that would very much like to be able to access that, you see. That's why they look at this and they call it, they have different hidden language for it. Isis. They call this Isis, the veil, right? They refer to it as Isis unveiled, the idea of being able to penetrate into your the core of your very being and have some control or influence there. That's what that's about. So uh, when you know how to decipher the language, and uh, Madame Blavatsky wrote a book called Isis Unveiled, talking about some of the aspects to this. So that being the case, you have to understand that this is absolutely what the whole transhumanist notion is about. They want to access that in every individual being. It's about individuality, individualization, individuation, as they call it. This is what they claim that their evolutionary process that they believe in in the secret schools is all about. The indiv individuation of the ego, and its reunion back to source. The, the whole cycles of time that it goes through, these various paths of evolutionary processes that it goes through in this grand cycle of things. So we separate from source, we manifest 
in various forms at some point. This is what they claim. This is what they believe. And in so doing, we, we take steps down through these different gradu graduated worlds, so to say, until we reach this physical, material world that we're in here. And this is the densest form. And then from here, we elevate back up through the various spiritual planes, back closer to source, and we cycle back through again and again. This is what they claim, this is what they believe, and this is what they're talking about when they talk about reincarnation and various things, and they talk about these various ages of man, the evolution of man. So when they're talking about the Atlanteans, this was a completely different world than it is today. So this is what they're talking about, and it may just be something abstract. It may not even be related to this physical world as we understand it. So when we're talking in these terms, you have to really keep an open mind, but not so open that your brain falls out, right? <laughs> That's the balance, the delicate balance you have to reach with this stuff, uh, because they do teach a lot of valuable information, but at the same token, they also teach confusion. They also teach some bad information, too, that's faulty. But that's the nature of this, and that's why you have to have some discernment to muddle through it. And it takes a lot of time, effort, reading, and study to try to decipher some of the things they put out there. But uh, let's try and stay on point here. We're talking about what they believe about the Atlantean epoch. And this is what they're talking about with Atlantis. So, aside from that little side point there, they claim that uh, the spirit in the Atlantean manifested partially outside of the body. Their consciousness existed partly outside of the body. This ontological self existed outside of the physical head. So it gave them an extra type of sensory perception into the spiritual realm of things. That's what the claim is. Let's continue reading and see what else they say here. These two points just spoken of, the one in the dense body and its counterpart in the vital body, were far apart in the men of the early Atlantean days, as they are in the animals of our day. The head of the horse's vital body is far outside the head of its dense body. The two points are closer together in the dog than in any other animal except, perhaps, the elephant. When they come into correspondence, we have an animal prodigy, able to count, spell, etc. On account of the distance between these two points, the Atlanteans' power of perception or vision was much keener in the inner worlds than in the dense physical world, obscured by its atmosphere of thick, heavy fog. In the fullness of time, however, the atmosphere slowly became clearer. At the same time, the point spoken of in the vital body came closer and closer to the corresponding point in the dense body. As the two approached each other, man gradually lost touch with the inner worlds. They became dimmer as the dense physical world became clearer in outline. Finally, in the last third of the Atlantean epoch, the point in the vital body was united to the corresponding point in the dense body. Not until then did man become fully awake in the dense physical world, but at the same time that full sight and perception in the physical world were gained, the capability of perceiving the inner worlds was gradually lost to most of the people. In an earlier time, the Atlantean did not clearly perceive the outline of an object or a person, but he saw the soul 
and at once knew its attributes, whether they were beneficial to him or otherwise. He knew whether the man or animal he was regarding was kindly or inimically disposed toward him. He was accurately taught by spiritual perception how to deal with others and how to escape harm. Therefore, when the spiritual world gradually faded from his consciousness, great was his sorrow at the loss. The Ramohals were the first of the Atlantean races, and that's spelled R-M-O-A-H-A-L-S, Ramohals. So they were the first of the Atlantean races. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. Once again, you have to ask, well, how does he know this? Where did this information come from? They never truly answer where the original information like this came from. But this is what they allegedly know from many of their occult scientists who use the investigative methods of clairvoyance and other such things to explore these ideas. And I don't want to sound dismissive of that, because there may be some type of perception or observation point, some type of occult practice of data gathering and verifying data that I'm unaware of, as far as like clairvoyance and stuff like that. I'm aware of the claim that they exist, and that people can use these in certain ways, and what some of their perceptions are through that, but... To actually verify it in the modern era is something that's extremely difficult. You see, how would you verify that? How could somebody convince you that they could see something in another realm that you can't? Well, you, you can't. I mean, it, it's the same story that goes with somebody that says that they had an experience with a ghost or with a flying saucer or something. And they have no evidence to back it up. They, they have no actual physical proof. How do you prove that? It's something experiential. How do you prove that? There's no real way to prove such a claim. So you kind of get lost in this trap of sorts where either you have to trust what they're telling you or you don't. And if they don't give you enough reason to trust what they're saying, how can you trust what they're telling you? And that's the problem with this, because as many times as they give you good, accurate information, they also give you false information and inaccurate information that leads you astray. And oftentimes they do this on purpose, and they admit to doing this on purpose, so you don't know whether they're being straight with you or not, whether they're telling you the, the true thing or not, or whether they even know what the truth is or not, or whether they're making stuff up out of whole cloth. It's hard to say. So when you go at this from a logical standpoint like that, yes, you could sometimes see circumstantial evidences that may back up some of what they say, but there's no actual proof of their claim. And when you make an extraordinary claim, extraordinary evidence is required to back that up. That's the standard fallback, right, of most investigators today. Extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Well, if there's no extraordinary evidence, then the extraordinary claim is just that. It's hearsay. And there's no way to verify it. So that's what is done with a lot of these informations, this, this data that they give us here about things like Atlantis. We have no way to verify are they correct or not. But it's interesting information. And like I said, sometimes circumstantial evidence may back up elements of some of the truth in it. 
So maybe there is an air of truth to some of it, and maybe there's not. So, I know I always seem to fall back on that same kind of uh, approach to this, because I think it's the most important approach we can take. I don't know. I don't have the answers. I'm just telling you what it is that they tell the initiates in their secret schools. This is the information they give them. They don't... They're not really forthright with where they got this information or how they know this, but they just claim that it's truth. They claim that it's true, that they know. And do they know? Maybe. <laughs> or maybe not. So at any rate, here we go. Let's continue reading. Because this is interesting stuff right here. Because now they're breaking down the Atlantean races into sub-races here. So the Romohals were the first of the Atlantean races. They had but little memory, and that little was chiefly connected with sensation. They remembered colors and tones, and thus, to some extent, they evolved feeling. The Lemurian had entirely lacked feeling in the finer signification of the word. He had the sense of touch, could feel the physical sensations of pain, ease, and comfort, but not the mental and spiritual ones of joy, sorrow, sympathy, and antipathy going to pause for a moment here, folks. So the Lemurian race, which preceded the Atlantean race, they claim here had physical sensation but did not feel emotions or spiritual type connections in that way. So you see how they, they try to tie these evolutionary ideas to this. And they do have teachings about the Lemurians and sometime we might get into what they teach about that prior to the Atlantean epoch. But uh, for right now, we'll stick with Atlantis because that's claimed to be the, the epoch that was closest to the modern epoch that we have and that we maybe have the most evidence for, even though that evidence is spurious at best. But let's continue reading. With memory came to the Atlanteans the rudiments of a language. They evolved words and no longer made use of mere sounds, as did the Lemurians. The Rumohals began to give names to things. They were yet a spiritual race, and their soul powers being like the forces of nature, they not only named the objects around them, but in their words was the power over the things they named. Like the last of the Lemurians, their feelings as spirits inspired them, and no harm was ever done to one another. To them the language was holy, as the highest direct expression of the spirit. The power was never abused or degraded by gossip or small talk. By the use of definite language, the soul in this race first became able to contact the soul of things in the outside world. The Tlavodilists were the second Atlantean race, and that's spelled T-L-A-V-A-T-L-I-S. So the Tlavodilists were the second Atlantean race, already they began to feel their worth as separate human beings. They became ambitious. They demanded that their works be remembered. Memory became a factor in the life of the community. The remembrance of the deeds done by certain ones would cause a group of people to choose as their leader one who had done great deeds. This was the germ of royalty. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. So the germ of royalty comes from this second Atlantean race. That's what they claim, and we have 
those royal bloodlines today who are obsessed with bloodlines and tracing things back as far as they can. And they do claim some connection to Atlantis, so perhaps this is where all of that arose. Maybe. <laughs> Let's continue reading. This remembrance of the meritous deeds of great men was carried even beyond the time when such leaders died. Mankind began to honor the memory of ancestors and to worship them and others who had shown great merit. That was the beginning of a form of worship, which is practiced to this day by some Asiatics. going to pause for a moment here, folks. So, ancestor worship. That's what they say. And, of course, the Rosicrucians claim Asiatics by some Asiatics. Well, I would say probably not just Asiatics. There's probably other people, too, out there not of Asian descent, that practice the same thing. Ancestor worship of some sort. So, that being said, let's see what else they have to say. The Toltecs were the third Atlantean race. They carried still further the ideas of their predecessors, inaugurating monarchy and hereditary succession. The Toltecs originated the custom of honoring men for the deeds done by their ancestors. But there was then a very good reason for so doing. Because of the peculiar training at that time, the father had the power to bestow his qualities upon his son in a way impossible to mankind at the present time. The education consisted of calling up before the soul of the child pictures of the different phases of life. The consciousness of the early Atlantean was, as yet, principally an internal picture consciousness, the power of the educator to call up these pictures before the soul of the child was the determining factor upon which depended the soul qualities that would be possessed by the grown man. The instinct, and not the reason, was appealed to and aroused, and by this method of education the son, in the great majority of cases, readily absorbed the qualities of the father. It is thus evident that there was at that time good reason for bestowing honor upon the descendants of great men, because the son almost always inherited most of his father's good qualities. Unfortunately, that is not the case in our time, although we still follow the same practice of honoring the sons of great men, but we have no reason whatever for doing so. I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. So the Toltecs. We've heard of the Toltecs, haven't we? So here's the claim in the secret society groups. This was the third race of Atlanteans during that epoch. Interesting stuff, right? But let's continue reading. Among the Toltecs, experience came to be highly valued. The man who had gained the most varied experience was the most honored and sought. Memory was then so great and accurate that our present memory is nothing in comparison. In an emergency, a Toltec of wide practical experience would be very likely to remember similar cases in the past and suggest what action should be taken. Thus, he became a valuable advisor to the community when a situation developed which none of the members had previously encountered and they were unable to think or reason from analogy as to how to deal promptly with the emergency. When such an individual was not available, they were compelled to experiment in order to find what was best to do. In the middle third of Atlantis, we find the beginning of separate nations. 
Groups of people who discovered in one another similar tastes and habits would leave their old homes and found a new colony. They remembered the old customs and followed them in their new homes as far as they suited, forming new ones to meet their own particular ideas and necessities. The leaders of mankind initiated great kings at that time to rule the people over whom they were given great power. The masses honored these kings with all the reverence due to those who were thus truly kings by the grace of God. This happy state, however, had in it the germ of disintegration, for in time the kings became intoxicated with power. They forgot that it had been put into their hands by the grace of God as a sacred trust, that they were made kings for the purpose of dealing justly by and helping the people. They began to use their power corruptly for selfish ends and personal aggrandizement instead of for the common good, arrogating to themselves privileges and authorities never intended for them. Ambition and selfishness ruled them, and they abused their high, divinely derived powers for purposes of oppression and revenge. This was true not only of the kings, but also of the nobles and the higher classes, and when one considers the power possessed by them over their fellow beings of the less developed classes, it is easy to understand that its misuse would bring about terrible conditions. Gonna pause for a moment here, folks. So a lot of this sounds like things that still go on today. This is not anything new or mysterious, right? We've all heard the, the expression, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Well, this is true in the nature of humanity. Oddly enough, sadly enough, I should say. Even though people with the best of intentions oftentimes may rise to positions of power, they wind up soon being overcome by their own selfish abuses of power. This always seems to happen. Throughout the course of human affairs, we see that. And there may be some that are honorable in their approach to things. But by and large, most of them, especially through the course of time and through inheritance, through family inheritance, these ones who inherit this power often wind up abusing it in many ways, and we see that even still today. And this is the claim as to where that all began, is in this Atlantean epoch, during this third root race, as they, they refer to them here within there. And they refer to this one as the Toltecs, and next they talk about the fourth one, the fourth Atlantean race here. Let's continue reading, and we'll find out about them. The original Turanians were the fourth Atlantean race, and Turanians is spelled T-U-R-A-N-I-A-N-S. They were especially vile in their abominable selfishness. They erected temples where the kings were worshipped as gods and caused the extreme oppression of the helpless lower classes. Black magic of the worst and most nauseating kind flourished, and all their efforts were directed towards the gratification of vanity and external display. 
The original Semites were the fifth and most important of the seven Atlantean races because in them we find the first germ of the corrective quality of thought. I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. The original Semites, this is the fifth root race that came from Atlantis, the fifth Atlantean race. The Semites, well, that's associated with the Jews today, isn't it? So you see how they get a lot of these ideas from many of these teachings, and this all ties back. And, you know, a lot of people, all they really have ever heard about the teachings of Atlantis was, yes, uh, there was this vast island, and it was catastrophically sunk overnight in one day. It was in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean somewhere, and that some of the philosophers claimed uh, to have a little bit of knowledge about it, and that's about it. That's about it. That uh, I think it was Plato said it was beyond the pillars of Hercules and this kind of thing, giving a, a you know a, a kind of location, a very broad generalized location somewhere in the Atlantic Ocean for this, and really we don't hear much else about it, do we? You really got to dig for this information, folks. Really got to dig. So this is what they they say here. This is what they claim in the secret schools. This is this comes directly from the Rosicrucians, folks. This is a Rosicrucian teaching, the Rosicrucian version of it. And many of the secret schools teach similar things. It's all the same ideas. They just change around the names and stuff at times. But it's all the same core ideas inherent in all of it. So let's continue here, and we'll see what they say next. The original Semites were the fifth race and most important of the seven Atlantean races because in them we find the first germ of the corrective quality of thought. Therefore, the original Semitic race became the seed race for the seven races of the present Aryan Epoch. Gonna pause for a moment here, folks. The Aryan Epoch. Did you know that we live in the Aryan Epoch? Probably didn't know that, did you? Well, according to the Rosicrucians, that's the epoch we live in. And that the seed race, for the seven races that are present now during this current epoch, is the original Semitic race. Now do you understand why... They hold the Jewish race in the ways that they do. They, they hold these opinions of them that they do, and sometimes it's a very negative opinion, and sometimes it's a very positive one. Sometimes it's claimed that this is the racial group that runs everything. They're the smartest, most advanced. And sometimes it's the opposite of that. You see? And... You get a little confused about this when you get to something like Nazi Germany and the things they were teaching and how they've twisted the idea and they claim that this population was the lesser one and that the Aryan race was the superior race, the master race. You ever wonder where they got those ideas? Well, it's directly out of Rosicrucianism, folks. Directly out of the mystery schools. The secret doctrine, as they like to call it throughout all of these occult fraternities. This is where it all comes from. This is where the idea of racial inequality comes from. 
This is why we have racial divide in this world. This is why they like to pull the strings of racial division to keep people in fighting over the nonsensical notion of this because we're all human beings. We're all the same race, the human race. But we have various differences that are distinguished in this way. And this ties directly back to these teachings because these the secret priestcraft that's existed all through our history believes that there are differentiations and some races are superior or more evolved than others. And that is why they do the things they do. And they think they're doing the lesser races as they see them, the less evolved races, a favor by doing the things in this world that they're doing. They're helping them to evolve more quickly or they're ending their suffering. This is how they view it from their point of view. This is from the point of view of these dark occultists that run things in this world. They think they're doing a service to those lesser beings than them. This is their viewpoint. Let's continue reading. See what else they have to say. In the Polarian Epoch, man acquired the dense body as an instrument of action. In the Hyperborean Epoch... The vital body was added to give power of motion necessary to action. In the Lemurian epoch, the desire body furnished incentive to action. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. So these are the epochs that predated the Atlantean epoch, according to the secret teachings, according to the secret doctrine. First was the Polarian epoch, where man acquired the dense body as an instrument of action. In the Hyperborean Epoch, the vital body was added to give power and motion, power of motion, necessary to action. And in the Lemurian Epoch, the desire body furnished incentive to action. So you see how in these various forms, these various bodies, which interpenetrate the physical dense body, as they call it here in their teachings, we have these different aspects. They would relate to what they call in a lot of modern occultism, like the etheric form, the uh, the astral form, and the vital body. the they, they use different terms, right? The more common ones you might hear is the ethereal body, the astral body, the vital body, the desire body, these different ideas. So these were given in order of evolution, according to them, in these during these epochs. And then we're going to get now to the Atlantean epoch. The mind was given to man in the Atlantean epoch to give purpose to action. But as the ego was exceedingly weak and the desire nature strong, the nascent mind coalesced with the desire body. The faculty of cunning resulted and was the cause of all the wickedness of the middle third of the Atlantean epoch. In the Aryan Epoch, thought and reason were to be evolved by the work of the ego in the mind to conduct desire into channels leading to the attainment of spiritual perfection, which is the goal of evolution. going to pause for a moment here, folks. Evolution. Evolution predates Darwin by a long, 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 long time. I've been telling you this for quite a while now. They're talking about something entirely different than Darwinian evolution. 
this was a way to capture the mind into thinking in the purely materialist viewpoint here in this world by introducing Darwinian evolution and presenting it in the form of being something factual when in fact it really doesn't have enough evidence to back up what they claim in the modern era. Now, yes, we do see certain things like natural selection or some variation of it. We see variation within species, but we don't see true speciation happening where a new species just all of a sudden evolves. And you would think that that would happen if Darwinian evolution were true, but they're not talking about evolution in that framework here. That's not what it's about. That is a designed to totally lead the mind astray as to what it is that they mean by evolution. You see how they contort the definitions of things to keep people in a state of confusion. And there may be some truth to their ideas of what evolution is, because it's a spiritual process. That's what they're talking about here. But anyway, let's continue reading. So we just read that the in the Aryan epoch, thought and reason were to be evolved by the work of the ego in the mind to conduct desire into channels leading to the attainment of spiritual perfection, which is the goal of evolution. This faculty of thought and of forming ideas was gained by man at the expense of loss of control over the vital forces, i.e. power over nature. With thought and mind, man can at present exercise power over the chemicals and minerals only, for his mind is now in the first or mineral stage of its evolution, as was his dense body in the Saturn period. He can exercise no power over plant or animal life. Wood and various vegetable substances, together with different parts of the animals, are used by man in his industries. These substances are all, in the final analysis, chemical matter insold by mineral life, of which the bodies in all the kingdoms are composed, as previously explained. Over all these varieties of chemical-mineral combinations, man at his present stage may have dominion, but until he has reached the Jupiter period, that dominion will not be extended so that he can work with life. In that period, however, he will have the power to work with plant life as the angels do at present in the Earth period. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. So you see, he's getting a little bit more into the Rosicrucian cosmogony here. There's these, this hierarchy of beings, of powers, they claim. Angels would be the next step up from here. And he claims that during this present Earth period... The angels have power to work with plant life. And that we will have that faculty when we evolve to the next stage. Let's read on. Material scientists have labored for many years in an endeavor to create life, but they will not succeed until they have learned that they must approach the laboratory table with the deepest reverence as they would draw near to the altar in a temple. With purity of heart and with holy hands, devoid of greed and selfish ambition. Such is the wise decision of the elder brothers who guard this 
and all the deep secrets of nature until man shall be fit to use them for the uplifting of the race, for the glory of God, and not for personal profit or self-aggrandizement. going to pause for a moment here, folks. The elder brothers, they guard these deep secrets, you see. <laughs> so are they talking about human beings as the elder brothers, or are they talking about some spiritual entity? I suspect the latter. But that's a subject, that's a topic for another day. You see, but they do have this hierarchy of spiritual powers that they acknowledge within the secret schools. And sometimes they take direction from these influencing factors here. So when I say, I suspect that there's a greater than human intelligence or a beyond human intelligence that often guides some of the agendas and stuff in this world. That's what I'm talking about. They acknowledge it in their teachings. Not in so many words all the time, but if you could read between the lines, you begin to understand. So these elder brothers, and they capitalize the words elder and brothers here, I think they're speaking of some kind of a spiritual authority, not a human being, if you get my gift here. And that's just one admission in here that they make in a very subtle way. It's a nod to something higher. And maybe there's some aspects of truth to the idea, and we've done an exploration of the idea of elemental spirits or nature spirits in some past broadcasts here. And I think there may be an air of truth to some of that as well. I think there's definitely these intelligences that guide things in this world in certain ways that we don't understand. But at the very same token here, you have people like this stating some of these things as absolute fact about the development of mankind and how someday we'll be at that next level that these angels are now, you see. So it's an interesting, interesting thing here, right? But let's continue reading. It was, however, this very loss of power over the vital forces which the Atlanteans suffered that made it possible for man to evolve further. After that, no matter how great his selfishness became, it could not prove absolutely destructive of himself and of nature, as would have been the case had the growing selfishness been accompanied by the great power possessed by man in his innocent former state. Thought that works only in man is powerless to command nature and can never endanger humanity as would be possible were nature's forces under man's control. The original Semites regulated their desires to some extent by the mind, and instead of mere desire came cunning and craftiness, the means by which these people sought to attain their selfish ends. Though they were a very turbulent people, they learned to curb their passions to a great extent and accomplished their purposes by the use of cunning as being more subtle and potent than mere brute strength. They were the first to discover that brain is superior to brawn. Gonna pause for a moment here, folks. 
And you could see some of the stereotypical connotations that the author here has attached to the Semites or the Jewish race. You see, craftiness, cunning, you see, and also connoting an, an air of weakness of sort because they're saying they were the first to discover brain over, as the superior over brawn. So you can see stereotypes inherent in the teachings here of these Rosicrucians. But you have to wonder where the source of some of these things came, comes from. And now you could understand where some of the stereotypes come from for some of the peoples. It comes directly from these secret teachings. Let's keep reading because we've got a lot more interesting stuff to cover before we sign off here tonight. During the existence of this race, the atmosphere of Atlantis commenced to clear definitely, and the previously mentioned point in the vital body came into correspondence with its companion point in the dense body. The combination of events gave man the ability to see objects clearly with sharp, well-defined contours, but it also resulted in loss of the sight pertaining to the inner world. going to pause there, folks. So man lost his spiritual sight and now only has physical sight in this Atlantean period. Thus we see, and it may be well to definitely state it as a law, no progress is ever made that is not gained at the cost of some previously possessed faculty, which is later regained in a higher form. going to pause for a moment here, folks. So, in order to gain something new, you have to lose something old. You understand? So this is why they feel the need to tear down belief systems. This is why they, they feel the need to destroy. You can't have a new world order unless you tear down the old world order, folks. Gotta make room for the new by destroying the old. And then it will be built back better. They will build it back better. You see. And you thought that was just a clever Biden phrase, didn't you? <laughs> and actually, it came from the World Economic Forum, too. But that's another story. Uh, but where did they get it? Well, here you go. Now you know where the teachings come from. They always tie back to this stuff. Isn't it amazing? Let's keep reading. Man built brain at the expense of the temporary loss of the power to bring forth offspring from himself alone. In order to get the instrument wherewith to guide his dense body, he became subject to all the difficulty, sorrow, and pain which is involved in the cooperation necessary to the perpetuation of the race. He obtained his reasoning power at the cost of the temporary loss of his spiritual insight. While reason benefited him in many ways, it shut from his vision the soul of things which had previously spoken to him, and the gaining of the intellect, which is now man's most precious possession, was at first but sadly contemplated by the Atlantean, who mourned the loss of spiritual sight and power which marked its acquisition. Gonna pause for a moment here, folks. So you see, they elevate intellect above all things in the secret schools. They say here, it was the gaining of the intellect, which is now man's most precious possession. 
but it was at first a, only sadly contemplated by the Atlanteans. You see, the gift of intellect. This is what they teach. Man will perfect the race through his intellect and evolve to the next state here and become gods. That's what they teach. Let's continue on here. The exchange of spiritual powers for physical faculties was necessary, however, in order that man might be able to function, independent of outside guidance in the physical world, which he must conquer. In time, his higher powers will be regained when, by means of his experiences in his journey through the denser physical world, he has learned to use them properly. When he possessed them, he had no knowledge of their proper use, and they were too precious and too dangerous to be used as toys with which to experiment. Under the guidance of a great entity, the original Semitic race was led eastward from the continent of Atlantis over Europe to the great waste in Central Asia, which is known as the Gobi Desert. There it prepared them to be the seed of the seven races of the Aryan Epoch, imbuing them potentially with the qualities to be evolved by their descendants. Gonna pause for a moment here, folks. So, under the guidance of a great entity, with a capital E it says here, the original Semitic race was led eastward to the, from the continent of Atlantis over Europe to the Gobi Desert, an entity they don't acknowledge the god of the jews as the creator of the universe and this is something that's important to keep in mind when they're talking about god or yahweh or jehovah they're not talking about the same jehovah or god accepted by christians as the creator as god almighty they're talking about a different figure same name, different figure, different attributions given to them. Not the same station in the creation. Keep that in mind as we continue. And it, you have to actually step outside of all the things you think you know and look at this from outside of the box in order to understand the things they're talking about. You have to forget everything you thought you knew and relearn what it is they're teaching here to understand what motivates them, what they believe, and why they act in the ways that they do. And a lot of this is some background on that. So it's important to explore these ideas that tie back to the Atlantean period here. So let's continue reading. During all the previous ages, from the commencement of the Saturn period, through the Sun and Moon periods, and in the three and one-half revolutions of the Earth period, the Polarian, Hyperborean, Lemurian, and earlier part of the Atlantean epochs, man had been led and guided by higher beings, without the slightest choice. In those days he was unable to guide himself, not yet having evolved a mind of his own. But at the last, but at last, the time had come, when it was necessary for his further development, that he should begin to guide himself. He must learn independence and assume responsibility for his own actions. Hitherto he had been compelled to obey the commands of his ruler. Now his thoughts were to be turned from the visible leaders, the lords from Venus, whom he worshipped as messengers from the gods, to the idea of the true god, the invisible creator of the system. 
Man was to learn to worship and obey the commands of a God he could not see. Their leader therefore called the people together and delivered a soul-stirring oration, which might be thus expressed. Hitherto you have seen those who led you, but there are leaders of varying grades of splendor higher than they, whom you have not seen, who guided your every tottering step in the evolution of consciousness. Exalted above all these glorious beings stands the invisible God, who has created the heaven and the earth upon which you dwell. He has willed to give you dominion over all this land, that you may be fruitful and multiply in it. This invisible God only must you worship, but you must worship him in spirit and in truth, and not make any graven image of him, nor use any likeness to picture him to yourselves, because he is everywhere present, and is beyond any comparison or similitude. If you follow his precepts, he will bless you abundantly in all good. If you stray from his ways, evil will follow. The choice is yours. You are free, but you must endure the consequences of your own actions. The education of man proceeds by four great steps. First, he is worked upon from without unconsciously. Then he is placed under the rulership of divine messengers and kings whom he sees and whose commands he must obey. Next, he is taught to revere the commands of a god whom he does not see. Finally, he learns to rise above commands, to become a law unto himself, and by conquering himself of his own free will to live in harmony with the order of nature, which is the law of God. And I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. And this, very much, is one of the teachings that has been contorted, twisted, perverted, and inverted by the modern occultists and by the secret schools and abused in many ways. This is what Aleister Crowley speaks of as the will, the concept of the will, the will being the whole of the law. Do as thou will will be the whole of the law. That's what they're talking about. They believe that when they evolve or are initiated into a high enough level here, they advance beyond ideas of morality, and therefore, they don't have any moral obligations. They don't have any laws they need to obey. The law that they give themselves is all. This is called moral relativism. You see, so they have adopted the idea of moral relativism because they think once they get to a high enough stature within the secret teachings that they are elevated beyond the point of being, they're beyond good and evil, you see. They're beyond reproach. They don't have these moral considerations to worry about anymore. There's no absolute standard of right or wrong for them, right or wrong. And they believe that this is the order of nature, the law of God. And it's the antithesis of it, you see. This is where it's gotten very twisted very quickly with these secret schools. Now, they try to make it sound as nice as possible here, don't they? But when you learn to read between the lines, you understand. That's exactly what they're claiming here. So they claim that at a certain point in your spiritual evolution you finally become the law unto yourself. I'm going to read that sentence for you again. 
okay? That last portion of this paragraph. So you can kind of get the inference here and understand what is being said here. Read between the lines and attach it to some other things that you've seen said. Things like that are put forward by Aleister Crowley and attributed to him the whole of the law. You see? Do as thou will will be the whole of the law. This is exactly what he's referring to. But it's been twisted and turned evil. Let's read the sentence here again, the, this whole portion. Next, he is taught to revere the commands of a god whom he does not see. Finally, he learns to rise above commands, to become a law unto himself, and by conquering himself of his own free will, to live in harmony with the order of nature, which is the law of God. And Crowley called this the crowned and conquering child. When you've conquered himself of your when you've conquered yourself of your own free will, that's what he's referring to. So they claim to have this mystical evolution happen, that they've evolved to the next level. They really believe this of themselves. So they see themselves above moral dogma. They think of it as dogma. And this is where it gets convoluted fast because these human beings, they're still human beings, but they think themselves beyond reproach. They think of themselves as superior, as being more evolved than you. And therefore, they don't have a problem with doing whatever it is they please, because they think they're beyond those restrictions now. Understand? Let's continue reading, and we'll wrap up here in just a few more minutes. Fourfold also are the steps by which man climbs upward to God. First, through fear, he worships the God whom he believes to sense, sacrificing to propitiate him, and do the fetish worship, as do the fetish worshippers. Next, he learns to look to God as the giver of all things, and hopes to receive from him material benefits here and now. He sacrifices through avarice, expecting that the Lord will repay an hundredfold, or to escape swift punishment by plague, war, etc. Next, he is taught to worship God by prayer and the living of a good life, and that he must cultivate faith in a heaven where he will be rewarded in the future, and to abstain from evil that he may escape a future punishment in hell. At last, he comes to a point where he can do right without any thought of reward, bribe, or punishment, but simply because it is right to do right. He loves right for its own sake and seeks to govern his conduct thereby, regardless of present benefit or injury, or of painful results at some future time. The original Semites had reached the second of these steps. They were taught to worship an invisible god and to expect to be rewarded by material benefits or punished by painful afflictions. Popular Christianity is at the third step. Esoteric Christians and the pupils of all occult schools are trying to reach the highest step, which will be generally achieved in the sixth epoch, the New Galilee, when the unifying Christian religion will open the hearts of men, as their understanding is being opened now. The Akkadians were the sixth and the Mongolians the seventh of the Atlantean races, they evolved the faculty of thought still further, but followed lines of reasoning which deviated more and more from the main trend of the developing life. The Chinese Mongolians maintain to this day that the old ways are the best. 
Progress constantly requires new methods and adaptability. Keeping ideas in a fluid state, therefore those races fell behind and are degenerating with the remainder of the Atlantean races. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. So the Chinese, they're claiming, are one of these older races and they're dying out. Interesting, right? Let's continue reading. As the heavy fogs of Atlantis condensed more and more, the increased quantity of water gradually inundated that continent, destroying the greater part of the population and the evidences of their civilization. Great numbers were driven from the doomed continent by the floods and wandered across Europe. The Mongolian races are the descendants of those Atlantean refugees. The Negroes and the savage races with curly hair are the last remnants of the Lemurians. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. So do you see the inherent racism in the Rosicrucian teachings here? They're claiming that these are the last vestiges of the Lemurian race and that the Mongolians... Or the Chinese were the last vestiges of the Atlantean race. And that we are currently in the Aryan epic. And that's actually the next section here. Because that was the end of the Atlantean epoch here in this book. The Rosicrucian Cosmo Conception. Written by one Mr. Max Heindel. And it goes on to talk about the Aryan Epoch, the one that we're in. But this gives us the connections we need to know for understanding why we have the racial tensions we have in this world. It's because it's promulgated from above, folks. From these secret society groups, from these dark occultists who run things, top down, they disseminate this racial divide among the people because they believe themselves to be of the superior races, the more evolved races. And they think they're doing a favor to the lesser races as they see them in doing the things that they do by interbreeding, intermarrying with these races and by causing all this tension and division in order to cause conflict and cause the homogenization of all the races. You see, they think they're bringing up the racial stock. It ties back to eugenics ideas once again, and this is what the Nazis were looking at, too. They wanted to eliminate the less desirable ones, the less desirable traits, and keep the more desirable traits, as they see it. And, of course, it's always these people that end up in the higher reaches of power that seem to think that they're of this lineage, this higher, more highly evolved racial stature than others. Of course, they see themselves as being superior, knowing better. And this is where the ideas come from, folks. This is why we have all the divides that we have in this world. Why they always use racial division as a control mechanism. The old tricks are the best tricks. Like always. So they use this to keep us divided on various lines. To keep us more easily controlled. And they do it based upon these belief systems. Because they believe that these older races 
these older epochs of humanity from the Lemurian times and the Atlantean times are just holdouts here, and they're holding the rest of us back. That's their attitude. They think they're holding humanity back. Just the mere fact that they're here and they're still clinging to some of these older ideas, older religions, older philosophies. They're the bitter clingers Obama referred to, holding on to their guns and religion. You see, they have this attitude about them. They think they're superior. They think that they're more highly evolved. They think that through these secret teachings, they uh, acquire some type of elevation, evolution. And they absolutely believe that they could take the next step and become the gods of this place, evolve along these lines. And they think that they have the right to do so. And this is where many of the teachings got contorted, inverted, turned into something totally horrific. I mean, if you look at the atrocities of World War II and understand that this right here was at the heart of all of it, maybe you have a greater understanding of how these ideas, when taken to an extreme by people in positions of power, can bring about severe harms to humanity as a whole. That there are these people, these dark occultists, who run things in this world that very much have a vested interest in maintaining some of their power here. And by pushing many of these conflicts, they think they're doing humanity a favor. That's the whole purpose, why they want to cull the population. They call us the useless eaters. They think that we are holding them back from evolving to where they want to be. And this is why the advent of the transhumanist notion has come into being as well. Because they think that through self-guided evolution, you see, this is a man, once again, taking charge of his own destiny rather than relying upon some archaic god as they see it here to guide his steps or some other power to guide his steps they can guide it themselves so this is their achievement of their great work the transhumanist notion of things to take hold of the power to change one's self to advance to this next step that they they seek here that they describe as being beyond this need for a god, for morality, as we discussed here. This highest step, as they call it. That he'll come to the point where he'll do what is right by him. What's the exact quote he had in here? Let me see if I could find it here. Finally, he learns to rise above commands, to become a law unto himself, and by conquering himself of his own free will, to live in harmony with the order of nature, which is the law of God. 
That's how Heindahl approaches that here. That's how he words it. It's essentially the same thing that Alistair Crowley said. You see, the do as thou will will be the whole of the law. And these people have taken it to an extreme, way out of context, and they're not really at that level where they have good intentions. They're still self-seeking, yet they claim to be more highly evolved than us, the rest of humanity, but they still have this same fault. It's for their own power, their own selfish means, and that's what they've taken this thing to mean. And this is how they act upon it, through this self-guided evolution. So when they achieve an absolute power here in the physical and are able to change the physical world into something completely artificial that they could control and manufacture themselves, they'll be the gods of this place. They will have evolved to their next level. But it's false, folks. This is not spiritual advancement, because they, in doing so, through seeking this transhumanist notion of things, it's a type of shortcut, really, in their own t teaching system here. It's a type of shortcut. What this, in fact, does is binds them to the material world, doesn't elevate them spiritually the way they see. It causes a divide, and this is explored in the works of Rudolf Steiner, when he talks about the difference between Ahriman and Lucifer, these energetic forces that are at play here, and how it relates to Antichrist. And that's a lot of what I explore. But in order to understand some of this stuff, we have to take a look back at the roots. And I thought a reading into the idea of Atlantis would be a good place to go with this, because you don't hear about this stuff much of anywhere, do you? But this is absolutely what they believe, and this is why the, the story of Atlantis is so very important to them, the mythology surrounding it. It absolutely shows their hand when you look at this. So, with that being the case, I think it's important that we take a look through this stuff, and perhaps we'll revisit some of the other portions of the Rosicrucian Cosmo conception, because although all the secret schools have very similar teachings, it's all the same stuff over and over, it's not as not laid out in as a precise way as much of the Rosicrucian writings are. And I think this is because they're the closest to modern times that we have, the Rosicrucian teaching of things. So they align with the other secret schools, the occult philosophies. And they have some slightly different names for different things, but it's all the same teachings at their core. So it's one of the best outlines to go by, to have an understanding of why they do the things they do. To understand their belief systems. So that's why I'm out here, just trying to get this stuff out there so people could have a better grasp of what's coming in the near future and why they do the things they do because that's the question people ask most okay i think we've hit the point in society where most people aren't denying now that there's something going on that they're 
is some type of an organized power structure that's acting against us. I think that's a given at this point. So they recognize it's going on. But the next question after they come to the recognition that it's really happening is why would they do that? And that's not a simple, quick five-minute answer. In order to understand their motivations, why they do these things, it takes an in-depth study into this stuff. These occult philosophies that absolutely guide their steps through all the ages into the modern era. And then you can understand why. And also, people will ask, how do they do this? That's also something I explore here. And we've shown some of the tools that they use to manipulate and to get the things done that they want, the agendas put in place that they want. So how and why? The two big questions people ask. And I think a lot of us are still out there pounding our heads against the wall trying to convince people that there is actually something going on. And a lot of people are maybe ready to accept that, yes, there's something going on, but they're not ready to delve beyond maybe the political aspect of things. They don't look at the problem that truly lies underneath all of it, and this is it. They just look at the surface-level symptom and think that that's the problem. Nope. There's a deep-rooted disease at the heart of it all. And that's what's going on, and that's why I find it necessary to explore these topics in depth like this. Because it reveals a lot that is hidden about the how and the why they do these things in this world. So, that's the bottom line. So, Atlantis, it absolutely has relevance today. <laughs> that's, I, I don't think after listening to this you could deny that there's a lot of relevant stuff related to Atlantis that we probably never talked about before. Most people probably have never heard. And this is it. And it's all right there in black and white in their books. Not me saying this. This is their own words. So remember... Remember, it's not just a silly story. Even if it is just a silly story, it has a lot of importance in this day and age. And there may be some facets of truth to it, as we always say here, and take it with a grain of salt, as I tell you often. Because I don't have the answers. I don't know. I'm just telling you what it is that they believe, what they teach, and what they claim to know. And this very much affects their philosophies and their policies that they put forward in the world and it will affect all of us so it's important to keep that in mind anyway i want to thank you all for tuning in tonight i appreciate each and every one of you and we'll catch you next time have a good night now we lead the world in facing down a threat to decency and humanity. Last week, along with cocaine, what is it today? It's more than one small country. It is a big idea. It does have oppression. It has a new world. Every faithful will gather inside the church. The faithful will gather inside the church. The faithful, the faithful, the faithful, the faithful.